verse, chapter 3, verses 1 to 10, the story of Samuel's calling. Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord under Eli. The, Lord, the word of the Lord was rare in those days. Visions were not widespread. At that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his room. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel, Samuel was lying down in the temple where the ark of the God was. Then the Lord said, Samuel, Samuel. And he said, Here I am, and ran to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But Samuel said, I did not call. Lie down again. So he went and lay down. The Lord called again, Samuel. Samuel got up and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But Samuel said, I did not call my son, lie down again. Now Samuel did not know the Lord yet, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. And he got up and went, and the Lord called Samuel again a third time. And he got up and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. Then Eli perceived what the Lord was calling the boy. Therefore Eli said to Samuel, Go, lie down. And if he calls you, you shall say, Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. Now the Lord came and stood there, calling as before, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, Speak, for your servant is listening. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me, please? Loving God, we are here to listen and hopefully to respond. So startle us with your message of love, with your presence and your call upon our life. Amen. <clears throat> Krista Tippett, author and a host of the popular NPR radio program entitled On Being, has said on several occasions when ruminating about her own life's journey, there are little moments when very big things happen. That's what she says. There are little moments when very big things happen. Now, I think you understand what she's referring to. For instance, there you are standing in line at Starbucks. You strike up a conversation with the person standing behind you. The conversation is so interesting, you exchange phone numbers, and then after several dates, you think to yourself, well, here's somebody I could love. Or maybe you're attending a neighborhood cookout, someone introduces you to someone else who just so happens to be looking for a person in IT, which is your field, and in two weeks' time, you have what will ultimately become your dream job. So indeed, little moments can become very big things. Well, it happened to me at a critical time in my life when I was a senior at Muskingum University. Now, it was a long time ago, but I do remember these things happening. <laughs> I had made a tentative commitment to a Master of Divinity degree at the School of Theology at Claremont in California as my pathway towards ordained ministry. 
But here I was just six months before graduation and I had to make a decision. Either I move ahead with some degree of certainty or find something else to do after graduation. And truly, I was on the fence about this. So I longed for a sign, a voice, a personal assurance that it was God's will that I go to seminary. I got nothing. I read, I studied, trying as hard as I knew how to establish some sense that I was really following the right track for my life. And what praying I did was really in the form of an inquiry. Anybody there? Anybody listening? Anybody care? I got nothing. Well, it was at that time, for some reason, that my Aunt Franny, a church organist in a small Methodist church in Arcanum, Ohio, chose to send me a poem that was, she wrote, one of her favorites. She thought I just might like it, which I did. It not only captured my imagination, but it changed the way I thought about God. It's a poem by Francis Thompson, and it's entitled, The Hound of Heaven. And it goes like this. I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the arches over the years. I fled him down the labyrinth ways of my own mind. And in the midst of tears, I hid from him. And under running laughter, up visited hopes, I sped and shot adown titanic gloams of chasm fears from those strong feet that followed, followed after. Now, I don't know if that's a good poem. I'm not an English major. I don't even know if it's great literature. But the words, I fled him and I hid from him, struck me. There is in that poem a notion of God and of our relationship with God that was quite unlike anything I had ever heard before. Growing up in that little church in White Cottage, Ohio, the assumption had been that God existed out there, someplace out there, if not in a literal heaven, certainly in some far research of the universe. And furthermore, my theological assumptions, such as they were at the time, included God intervening dramatically in history and in the lives of others. But when I was honest, I was suspicious of that because, quite frankly, nothing like that had ever happened to me. No voice came to me in the dark, no bolt of lightning knocking me down with the sure sense of my purpose. Nope, not at all. Overall, my assumption was that God was a mystery, a good mystery. And, and our human task, maybe even the highest human task, was to seek God, go find God, pursue God. And then I encountered this poem with its astonishing assertion that sometimes human beings flee from God and that God pursues and follows human beings down the nights and down the days and over the arches of the years. That's a very different God 
from the one who waits for us to seek and find God. Instead, this is a God who takes the initiative in the divine human encounter and comes after us. Well, it wasn't long after I received that poem that I encountered a second writing, the 139th Psalm. I'm not sure how I missed it. I took a course on the Psalms in college, but you know how courses go in college. You do miss things, don't you? So here it was, this psalm, with its suggestion that God seeks and finds us and that there is nowhere we can go, either accidentally or purposely, that, to try to avoid God, that God will not come and find us. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there, says the psalmist. Well, I don't know if you'll agree with this assertion, but most of the books in the Old Testament are really about matters of a communal nature, about how to live in community with God as the one God in your life, but not the Psalms. They are mostly, well, personal. I think of the 23rd Psalm. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Or maybe Psalm 121. I lift up my eyes to the hills, from where does my help come? Like them, Psalm 139 is intensely personal. An, in, an intimate confession of a person whose lifelong relationship with God was a result of God's persistence, God's search and pursuit, and ultimate finding of the individual. Now, again, that's a very different idea of God than I had ever heard before. And not only that, but it puts religion, what I was going to dedicate my life to, and ultimately did, in a different light. Instead of the human pursuit of God, religion, or church, becomes the activity, the place, or the way that human beings respond to God's initiative. I had never, ever considered that before. I grew up in a church where you had altar calls. And you know what you do at altar calls? You find the Lord. But this was all about the Lord having already found you and you opening yourselves up to that finding. Again, a very different idea about God. Well, that's a theme that appears throughout the Bible. And in one of our oldest stories, God comes to a young boy, Samuel, and it's in a voice in the dark. Only Samuel doesn't recognize the voice. He thinks it's the voice of the old priest Eli with whom he is living and apprenticing. Samuel, the voice says. And Samuel gets up from his bed and goes to Eli. Three times it happens. The voice says his name. Samuel thinks it's Eli calling. The third time, Eli, who now suspects the voice is actually the voice of God, tells Samuel to answer. The initiative is all God's, all God's wonderful persistence. It takes four times to get Samuel's attention. And the sense of the story is that God will stay with it as long as it takes. Eli's role, the priest's role, interestingly, is 
not to be the voice of God, but simply to suggest that Samuel might try listening to the voice calling his name. It's another interesting paradigm about ministry in the church that I was not raised with. Instead of preaching, which we all love to do, we preachers, it's about helping people hear the call of God in the very midst of their lives. Now, I want to ask you, does any of this sound familiar, this struggle for God? Does any of this sound familiar to you? I, I, think, it's, I think it's the human story. And most of us aren't very good about talking about these religious experiences or the devoid of those religious experiences. And the reason is that I think for many of us, we can't pinpoint a time or a date or a singular moment, but rather a lifetime of moments, slow and long process, being hot and being cold, times of certainty and times of doubt when indeed we respond to the call of God. In other words, Psalm 139 suggests that the call of God on our lives is a process and that God takes God's time to hear our yes. Well, I don't know if I've described my story very well. It did happen a long time ago. So I would like to share with you another story about this sort of opening ourselves up to this God who pursues us and it's the story of Frederick Beekner. Now, I love Frederick Beekner, and he describes this massive call upon his life in a book he wrote a long time ago entitled The Sacred Journey. Life, according to Frederick Beekner, any life, his life, my life, your life, is a sacred journey into which God speaks and comes consistently. And what makes it sacred is that God comes. Now, Beekner was not raised in a church family. What religion he had came in bits and pieces from occasional visits with grandparents. After college, he taught English for a while, joined the army, and ended up in New York trying to be a writer and discovering that he couldn't write a word. He tried a number of things, including a love affair that failed. He wrote, every door I tried to open slammed in my face. It all sounds like a kind of farce when I write it down. Part of the farce was that for the first time in my life, that year in New York, I started to go to church regularly. And what was farcical about it was not that I went, but the reason for going. It was simply on the block where I lived, and I had nothing better to do on Sunday morning. So I went. The church was Madison Avenue Presbyterian Church. And the minister was a man named George Buttrick. Sunday after Sunday, Beekner went to church. It was not just his eloquence that kept me coming back, but he writes these words. What drew me more was whatever it was that his sermons came from and whatever it was in me that touched me deeply. And then there came one particular sermon with one particular phrase in it that does not even appear in the transcript of his words that somebody sent me 25 years later. So I can only assume that he must have dreamed it up on the spot, and I liked it. And on just such a foolish, tenuous phrase, I felt God. He said, Jesus Christ is king, 
because again and again he is crowned in the hearts of people who believe in him. And that inward coronation takes place among confession and tears and great laughter. Buechner says it was that praise. Great laughter. That's what did it. Did whatever it was that I believe must have been hidden in me in all the doings of the journey of my life. It was not so much that a door opened as that I suddenly found that a door had been open all along, only now just stumbling upon it. Again, the psalmist. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? Now, just on the out chance that you might be fleeing from God, living your life in what seems to be a normal, ordinary way, but is actually holding God at arm's leave, this idea of God's persistent pursuit should be, if not tantalizing, then helpful. And if your life is so full, full of job and family and complicated relationships, professional demands and tight schedules, your boss's expectations regularly exceed the number of hours in the day, long days with no time for leisurely lunches or even pleasant human conversation, not to mention praying, you might just find intriguing these other words by the prophet, by the psalmist. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. And the next time you have to hurry to catch the plane after a busy day and a stressful trip to the airport, fighting crowds and escalators and the ticket counter, falling into your seat, and after the irritatingly long wait out there on the far reaches of the Columbus International Airport, you finally take off and reaching cruising altitude of 33,000 feet, you might find interesting and comforting and maybe even provocative these other words by the song. If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and settle at the farthest limit of the sea, even there your hand shall find me. And tonight, or maybe tomorrow night, when you fall exhausted into bed, you might be intrigued by these words. You search me out, my coming, my going, my lying down. And if your life can be described as, well, hellish, if nothing is working, if it all seems tragically empty and lonely, if relationships are sour and work is boring and there's no light on the horizon, no promise, no hope, hear these words of the psalmist. If I make my bed in Sheol, which is just another word for hell, you are there. And if you find yourself thinking a lot about your own finiteness, if the recent death of a loved one or a close call or a dreaded lab report or the worst diagnosis you can imagine, if you find yourself thinking about mortality, hear these words, which I think should be the very last words that any of us are privileged to hear. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light around me become night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day, for darkness.
is as light to you. And now these words by Frederick Buechner. What I found was what I had already half seen, or less than half seen, in many places over the years of my life without ever clearly knowing what it was I was seeing, or even that I was seeing anything of great importance. Something in me recoils from using such language, but here at the end I am left with no other way of saying it than what I finally found was Jesus, the Christ, or better yet, was found by Jesus the Christ. Well, I love that tiny vignette at the first chapter of John, John's different version of the call of the disciples, Philip and Nathaniel. Nathaniel is apparently tending to his own affairs, living his life, going to work, paying his bills, taking care of business. Sounds just like you and me. And then Jesus sees him, approaches. And Nathaniel says, how do you know me? And Jesus says simply, I saw you under the fig tree. And that, I submit, is how it happens and how it is. Into our lives, Christ Jesus comes. Into our lives, God speaks our name, doing what we're doing, sitting where we sit, and waits. Doesn't force the issue. Speaks our name and waits as long as it takes for our response, for our faith, for our trust, our love, and our yes to the call upon our lives. If I take the wings of the morning and settle at the farthest limit of the sea, even then your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me fast. May this be so for each of us. This day, this week, this year, all the years of our life. Amen. Excuse me. You join me in singing.